Welcome to Property and Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tools, and tactics to become a successful property investor. Charlie, are you wearing sunglasses? Grant, this podcast has been heating up, heating up in a big way. Like the glare coming off this podcast is so intense now that I'm going to have to wear sunglasses. <laughs> is that because and too many people are recognizing you down the street, so now this is you incognito? But you know what, though? They're going to know what my incognito look is now. I'm going to be easily found. We'll swap studies and people won't have any clue. Anyway, if you are trying to find Charlie in a needle, like a needle in the haystack, and you actually want to get some kind of insight from us, head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. Put in your name and email and you won't see us in incognito anymore. You'll actually see the true us. Charlie, let's cue the disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Property and Investing, and I need to let you know that Grant and I and the Property Investing team are in no way, shape, or form qualified to give you financial advice. We strongly encourage you to seek out and use professionals when comparing investment products or making investment decisions. All right, Grant. We better talk about the sunglasses. What sunglasses? Exactly. (laughs) So for anyone who's just on audio right now, uh, they wouldn't be able to see, knowing this is a video podcast, Grant, that we're actually both wearing sunglasses. Now, I really wish I had some sort of elaborate story of, you know, like me saving someone from a, you know, being robbed and I got punched or something like that, like I was a hero of some kind. But that's That's not the truth at all. No, not at all. I'm going through what I'll call some eye challenges. And uh, unfortunately, I'm unable to view my computer screen without glasses on right now. It's causing me a little bit of pain. So this is the midlife. So I want to say a massive thank you to you because you've actually come along for this journey with me. You put some sunnies on too. (laughs) When a man's down, I'm not going to sit there and be the one on the high ground. I'm going to go down there and help him out too. I'll jump in the trench with you. I don't I'm know if you've ever it. seen the uh, Dancing Man video where there's a guy dancing on his own and then all the people start Everyone climbing and they in. dance together. I feel so like that's us right now, like helping a brother out. I appreciate you. <laughs> Everyone's going to start wearing studies where they listen and watch this episode, <laughs> this, the Dancing Man. I will be very curious if the podcast clips do better because people are like, what the fuck? Those guys are wearing sunnies. <laughs> no, I hope not. I kind of feel like, and I hope like this is the only episode we do with sunnies because it's really hard to read a computer screen, but I'm in, I'm in. Completely. Anyway, let's get to the episode itself because this is an important one. This is the March Roundup episode and this is where we bring all of the important things that are happening in property to our audience so they don't have to sift through all the amounts of data and research that comes out and stories that we think are important. So you cheat up for it? Oh, yes. Yes, I am. I've been waiting for this. All right. So let's dig into the first thing here as we like to do, which is the Core Logic Report. Core Logic. All right, Grant, I, I can't resist. I'm jumping in first on this and I'd love uh, your commentary. <laughs> I assumed you read it. A few times, actually. Hey, yeah, good start. I was really surprised when I read this report to see how much things have slowed. Right, And to give that context is I kind of expected prices to keep falling as interest rates have gone up. We'll cover that later, but thank you, Dr. Lowe. Um, so when I logged into this report and see that we've practically had a flat month, like if you look nationally, 
the previous month was like a 1% fall, where to now it's like, I'm going to call it flat. It's practically zero, totally. which I think is a significant shift in market. I think it's really significant. Um, it tees up some things we've got lined up to cover in the rest of this conversation, but that was the first thing that kind of really caught me by surprise. Was there anything else that you kind of saw in this? That was It was one of the observations that I saw, and I'm like, I wonder what impact that's had. So I literally just jumped on the online valuation calculators and put in my properties <laughs> just to see if it was real. Like, I wonder, in every property, up by $5,000 specifically. So I got no idea what that is. But I, I did find that that plateau just an interesting observation when I think that interest rates are going to continue a little bit more. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's a bit interesting. I didn't think it was going to go flat that quick. No, nah, me either. It really, it really didn't. And then the other observation that I thought was quite fascinating, I mean, this one I did expect, rents are just still screaming up. Rents be pushing hard. Did you see unit rents? The rents on units just go on an absolute tear. Well, this is where I think ultimately this report comes to like the bottom of it and what I think we should really discuss here is I've had a bit of a change of feeling on the unit market and I'll put that into two parts is like the townhouses and apartment market. I've seen a significant shift here and it's like if you go back to when we were in the what I call the pandemic times, they're practically giving them away. The vacancies yep. were through the roof and it's like if you look to this year, that's changed so significantly now. You'd have to say it's probably one of the higher performing parts of the market. How's your opinion on units and townhouses at the moment? It it changed. So looking at the CoreLogic report, uh, what you saw during the big C period was just a, a rental yield tanking. Right? I remember, I remember I negotiated my rent in Melbourne and it basically halved. It was like 250 bucks off my rent. <laughs> and I was like, there was just empty apartments after empty apartments and landlords were actually scared to have their place vacant because they didn't know when it was going to be full. And now obviously I'm like, cool, maybe these are just coming back to a normality. But now I'm actually looking at this saying, and it was it was an interesting view when I saw this. I said, I'm like, does this can have space to continue to run? And then I thought back to when I lived um, overseas for a short period of time in Asia. Dude, the cities are full apartments, more so than what we've got in a Melbourne or a Sydney. And I go, yeah, maybe this is just our start to becoming a little bit more urbanized in sort of inner city areas because there's just doesn't there's just not that availability. And so my view went from a, I just want land and houses and that is my investment hypothesis to now going potentially in my portfolio, I can start looking at something like a, a townhouse or a small unit or something like that where there is the good yield potential plus a decent amount of growth as opposed to me just completely writing it off and just going, I never want to look at this thing. Now I'm starting to look at it going, maybe there is a spot in my portfolio for something like this. So I went deeper, much deeper. Oh, you went deeper? All right, okay, yeah. give it to us. All right, so uh, one of our favorite investors is a guy called Howard Marks, and he very much has instilled the idea into me that it's not what the asset is, it's what you pay for it. So it makes a huge difference. Like you might have a company, for example, use actually we should keep it property focused, but it's like you might have an area that isn't the best, but if the property is a dollar, it's a great buy. You're going to be able to sell it for more Completely. than a dollar. As an investor, isn't that our goal? To make money? Completely. Right? Find the right asset. Where if you massively overpay for a great asset, so let's say a premium asset, it's a million bucks and you pay $2 million for it. It's like we you got to wait for that thing to double just to break even. So even though the asset is better, what you pay for it 
plays such a significant role in how it does. Uh, and I also think when it comes to property investing, there's this huge bias, huge, where because so many things have happened with apartments and people buying off the plan, it's become like this hated asset. Yep. Like in the investor circle, so many people are sitting there going, do you know what, I wouldn't buy an apartment or a townhouse. I've heard about this with Strata. I've heard about this, you know, land value. That's where the money is to be made. And uh, I'm at this point willing to go on the record speculating, of course, right? It's more I'm going on the record for my own ego, not necessarily justifying other people's investments, Grant, please note. So this is definitely not financial advice but something I am looking at intently. I think because the unit and townhouse market has got so much hate, I think because uh, so many people want to live in these locations and just can't afford houses and the constriction mixed in with interest rates being higher, I'm calling it now units and townhouses, not in CBDs. So I'm not talking about like Melbourne CBDs. I'm talking about those nice suburbs around it, your Brightons, your Hawthorns, your Turaks, your Rose Bays. Yeah, Richmond's. Yeah. Yep. Richmond, clearly we're very Victoria-focused. I'm sure if someone's in another state, they can chime in and offer something great as well. Are going to go on a tear. And I'll put one more layer on this. Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane predominantly, just because of space restrictions. In Western Australia, they still have a lot of room where I think that's not going to be as true and same for Adelaide. But I think this is potentially one of the plays we're going to see unvolve, un, uh, unravel and unfold in front of us. And this is something that I think is going to be particularly interesting for investors going forward. That is where my research started of going, I wonder what this looks like. And you have gone significantly deeper than I had. I had a whole heap of personal bias that I had to get over before I started looking at it, but down that way. But what was it? There was this news, um, a new segment where like in Richmond, there was like only eight places available for rent and there was like a hundred people per place. And I'm just like, they just can't like like, the only thing you can put there is like units and townhouses. Like there is no space for dedicated blocks of land and and actual sort of uh, solid housing at all. So I concur with you on this. The only thing that I want to look at is going, okay, what does it look like over a long period of time? And so there's a lot more research that I want to do before I just go and start buying them willy-nilly and going even to your point around strata fees, even to your point about like potential unlimited supply. Like you can just keep going vertical. So what does it look like to in order to get a better asset class? Oh, could we go there? All right, let's do it. Let's, all right, so this is why I say the CBD thing is really interesting. And I want to talk about, don't let me forget, talk about land tax here. Because I think it's a really interesting thing as well. I got you, I got you. Okay, cheers. So Melbourne CBD, if you look at that right now, or even Sydney CBD, I think there's very real risk that you just get another tower built next to you. Right? Supply risk is real. Like the way they, like we walked through Melbourne the other day how many cranes are up? How much stock's coming into the market? I think a like, legitimate sp- supply risk is there. What is it? There was a record. There was like 400 cranes or something like that in Australia, up, which is like a record number, full stop. So, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, if you're going into those types of things, I can see real risk massively. But if you uh, step out in the market, I'm, so this is where I, I, I do uh, have my residence, right? Although we've got to be careful, right? Because people might start following me around now. So, be careful how I say this. I looked into it specifically. Yeah, with these sunnies, we'll be safe. (laughs) Go on. But I looked into this more deeply here around the suburbs, and I'll use specifically Brighton because housing is really expensive here. Like, it's not unheard of to pay $3 million to $5 million for a house around here. 
Mind you, it's a nice house, but it's like it's an expensive area where there's still the ability to buy um, townhouses and uh, apartments for like less than half of that. Right, so there's a really big discrepancy between cost, but people want to live here for the access. And you say, well, what's the supply and demand risk around that in this area? I'm not sure there's a council you would want to less be near to get building approvals through. The people of Brighton, like all these older doctors and lawyers who have bought into this suburb, the last thing they want is people putting up massive developments near them. So they find it hard really hard and all those housewives with too much time on their hands they're the ones making trouble uh, now that's a massive speculation i shouldn't say that's true <laughs> I, say that I suspect was. it is in a little bit here i'm joking i'm joking <laughs> I, although i would love to know uh for real who are the people putting in the objections i would yeah. love to know that is it again is it the nesters worried about their view a whole bunch of things but the ability to build massive amounts of supply in brighton specifically it's really hard really hard. So I'm not necessarily sure that type of setup is there. And then the other thing is too, is that um, big towers to me, I don't like the idea of investing in big towers because there's a risk that comes with that as they age and costs and body corporate. But those smaller type developments, let's say under 20, that have got like really good uh, sized, uh, in this case, it would be apartments or little townhouses, even I would live in some of these. They're fantastic. They're really high quality. They're like they're like bigger than what you would consider an apartment or townhouse. They're practically homes on small blocks of land, or in the sky slightly. And you like one of the things that I've seen is there's a place in Melbourne called South Yarra where they just went crazy on apartment buildings, <laughs> and like looking at that, it's just become this infinite supply of properties like it's just like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how high it doesn't matter where and it just created like a school zone essentially live like all the uni students and all like the young professionals and stuff move there and then they say well it's almost like a stepping stone to get to your brightons it's like well, okay we're going to be here for a couple of years and then we're going to progress out as opposed to your point around townhouses which is like how do i stay here and raise a family here and continue on here um, and I concur, like, you ain't going to see massive buildings in the Vaucluses and Rose Bays and stuff of the world. Like, it's just not going to go up, like, or the middle parks of Melbourne. All right, so here's the question for you. This is what I thought about a little bit more than this. Um, there's some schools around my area that people really want to be in, like, really want to be in. Uh, like, so the point being is that if, let's imagine this, you're a family and you've got a healthy budget to spend on a home. Let's say $1.5 in this example. Right, and you're looking at it and you go, I want to be in that school zone because I want my kids to go there. Would you live in a four-bedroom townhouse to get your kids into a, that school? Put your one five point five million there or would you move further out into the burbs? Still get a, you probably get a much bigger place, potentially even a nicer place, but you're not going to get that school zone. What decision are you making? Everyone's majority of people will go to the school zone. What about access to the city? If you're in corporate as well and you've got to get into the city, that's, again, fantastic amenities and train line and things like that in the Brighton area and St Kilda area and everything like that. It's I look to these things and I go, I can see why this is going to have good demand. I really can. Not to mention yes. the status and ego thing, right, about you know people who live in like really expensive suburbs love to tell people about it. It's like the Harvard thing. People who went to Harvard love to tell people they went to Harvard. If I told you. If you, li- if you live in Brighton, that's how you open your sentences. How you doing? I'm from Brighton. 
Oh, we've gotten that out of the way. <laughs> I am from Brighton. <laughs> like little name tags. All right, and I'll mention so, one more point on this just before we move on with uh, land tax or I'll, I'll, I'll stop hogging the mic, although you can see I'm excited by this. I was going to say, yep. Yeah, so when, when you're looking at investing in um, particularly in like blue chip suburbs, what people don't take into consideration when they get to a bigger portfolio size is land tax and when you're hitting that and how you're paying that. And the ratio of income versus land tax when you start looking at apartments and townhouses because they have a smaller land component starts to become really interesting. So if you continually buy these like blue chip investments on, on bigger blocks, is like your land tax bill is going to get bigger quicker. So you may not be able to grow in a way you would necessarily want to be able to do it. Well, you might be able to get three townhouses for the same amount of land value thinking, you know, three on one block type setup. Yep. And I'm seeing that as particularly advantageous for those looking to kind of have a cash flow play as well. And even to that, like you then get to minimize your body corporate in some circumstances where if you've got like three townhouses and then don't have shared facilities, it's like, great, like <laughs> they're just self, self-containing. self So there there are benefits to it and I can start seeing why people would want to invest in it. And as people just start coming to the point of just going, you know what, I'm fine with being in a townhouse, like the second that breaks in people's minds of I just need a standalone property, which I think it has, I think now it's like, okay, cool. Now it's just normal. It's still just perceived as a, a house or a decent place to live. I'm curious. i got a question for you. I'm going to pivot away from units if that's okay. Go for it. Sweet. With what you were seeing, so February, basically it was going from negatives for quite a while and February is kind of plateaued. We'll call it, we'll call it flat. We'll call it zero. Right. Oh no, it wasn't perfectly zero, but we'll call it zero. Well, well, you can see why I wasn't the best tradesman, right? You know, if I'm willing to go, yeah, that's level. It's zero. So uh, it's like, it's slightly, I should be right. It's about plum. All right. Now we all we know that there is not enough houses in Australia for the people that are coming in via migration and people who exist here and there's not enough buildings building people, blah, 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 all known. I'm curious. Imagine I removed that and I just said there were just enough houses for everybody to live in. Do you, would you be freaking out right now from everything that you're seeing, from interest rate rises, from wages, from everything? Or do you think that it is one component of something else that is kind of making this an equilibrium property market, like a 0%? Okay, so you're suggesting if there wasn't such a supply and demand imbalance, right? So let's say that yep. there's even a little bit too much supply. Okay, it's slightly over, right? We've got some room. I'm fine with that too. Yep. Fine. Would I be Where more people- concerned about what's going on around the world with interest rate rises and things like that in the Australian housing market? Completely. That's my question. Yeah. Okay, that's the question. Uh, absolutely. I think that what you're describing is the force that's essentially saving the Australian property is- market. And that was one of the views that I had looking at the CoreLogic report. And, and it, it walked through so many interesting points, which is like inflation's, uh, sorry, inflation's rampant, Interest rates are up, cost of li- like oh, cost of living is obviously inflation. Wages are not changing. Like all of these things, which are pretty bad and impact the people's ability, but then it's like this one side of going, oh, and we just don't have enough houses significantly, right? Plus we've got immigration coming in, and so my question is, and they pose this thought around: Is this the eye of the storm, or is this the end of the storm? Noting that. Do you think it's the eye of the storm? Do you reckon this is just going to be a blip on the radar for a couple of months? Or do you think that this is the end of the storm? Do you know what? I want to ask you the same question, though. I want to reverse this one. So what's what's your view on that? Do you think this is done or the eye? 
I think, so <laughs> I was talking to you about this. So I, I see this as a game of tug of war, right? <laughs> you've got 20 10-year-old kids on one side and you've got this one massive 250-kilo guy on the other side just leaning back. <laughs> and wait, 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 wait. Who's, what's on what side? Right? I want to know here. So is this like this is, uh, Philip Lowe and interest rates on one side and then bank policy and APRA? What's on the other side? Undersupply of housing. <laughs> the 250-kilo person is the undersupply of housing. Everything else? would be make me super scared, like completely bearish. And I'm like, I'm concerned. But then there's this just this one massive guy that is pulling, that's just like leaning on this rope that goes the complete opposite direction. And I'm like, if that guy let go, then it's it's screwed. But I'm like, the problem is he's not letting go. And there is no, and I've, I've intellectualized, tried to intellectualize with this. There's no swing of a bat that you can just go and create 100,000 houses. Like there's just no bat that you can swing for that. I've thought of it. There is. I've actually thought about this. Are you ready? If the government was serious about solving inflation, deport people. Go on a mass deportation. Instead of bringing 300,000 people a year into the country, kick 300,000 people a year out of the country. Shift the supply dynamics in housing in a big way. If you can't build the dwellings, right, which I agree, I think it's impossible to, in the short term, meet the needs of housing and accommodation if you were to get change the variables, right? You know, like this is like the exercise and diet thing. It's like, oh, I'll just run more to burn more calories. Maybe just don't eat as much. Right? You can you can attack this from two different le- lenses here or two different ways. If we started deporting huge amounts of people, what do you think would happen? No, I, I get it, but then it has so many other ramifications to the economy, but I get what you're putting down <laughs> to which they won't do it. Well, you see this in um, things even in localised markets. So if you look to, uh, like, let's say there's a small regional town that becomes a, a ghost town, mm-hmm. what do you think happens in that town as population falls? Yeah, prices drop. What a shocker. <laughs> do you think interest rates had any effect on that? <laughs> no, but, uh, but do you see, you know why they're doing such large immigration and importing people and trying to get people back into Australia, obviously. I just don't think yeah, they're going to pull that trigger. All right, so let's um. So to go deeper into this, do we do we think the this is the eye of the storm? Or are we done? Just short answer: Where are we, Grant? I think we are done for a little bit. For, and when I say a little bit, call it two years. Tell Maybe, you what, I'm, I'm, I'm go- <sighs> yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go on the record twice in one episode. I'm going to do it. We're done. This is it. <laughs> Yeah, this Hang is on. it. I'm gonna I'm gonna back this one up because I think this is a really important thing. When people um, say, "Oh, look, there's not enough housing," do you know how far off it is? Do you know how imbalanced the supply and demand is? It's like a couple of hundred thousand houses. Yeah, it's uh, estimated and at four hundred thousand houses or four hundred thousand accommodation type, right? The townhouse dwellings fit, fit the mix. Right. So then the second part of that is that um, we do actually have uh, vacant homes in Australia. You can get on realestate.com.au now and there's houses for sale, there's places for rent, but they're just not in places people want to live. Right. So they're not in the right spots. So supply and demand has this interesting dynamic where it's like, let's say they put 100,000 houses in the middle of nowhere. It's not going to solve this. They've got to put 100,000 houses in the right places to actually have an effect on supply and demand. It's like, that's the idea, right? If you have been... You know, it's the idea, you know that, uh, no, I won't make that point. It kind of goes off topic, but it's like 
I don't think people are going to be attracted to a substitute. It's like, oh, you could buy a house here. It's like, yeah, but I work here. My kids go to school here. I don't need accommodation in the middle of nowhere. That's not going to solve this for me. All right. So that's one side of it in here. And then again, I went deep this week, Grant, because I was very curious about this as well when it comes to the uh, unit market. Because for people to be justifying going into units instead of houses, it's like, well, clearly the supply and demand isn't in favour. Like if you ask most people they would love to live in a house that's relative size, it's like, well, why are they compromising and living in smaller apartments or townhouses then? You know, and some will say they don't want to clean the whole place or maybe they're older, but for the vast majority, it's because they can't afford it. Yep. That's the dynamic, affordability. All right. So digging deeper into this one, and Grant's like, Dan, Charlie, you spent way too much time researching property this week. I was going to put my points on top. It's fine. I get you. I did. I did. I went on to um, – I heard a really interesting podcast with uh, Terry Ryder and another gentleman, which I cannot may, uh, remember his name at the moment. Um, and then I listened to a, uh, another podcast and they were talking about the ABS building approvals. Mm. And so Australia's approved the idea of bringing 300,000 uh, people into the country a year is what we're doing. This isn't a joke. This is literally what we're doing. They've put it out. You can uh, put into it. And I log into the ABS and I've got it in front of me. It's like the January 2023 seasonally adjusted estimate is total dwelling approvals fell 27.6%. Right. So we're already undersupplied and the approvals are falling faster due to interest rates, right? A lot of people aren't building or because they can't get uh, things into the country to do the builds or interest rates are preventing them from creating profitable developments. And I'm like, this squeeze is just going to get worse. I concur. The one thing that, so my question to you is like, so I believe this is going to go on a tear for one to two years. Like, I, I just think that there's just too much pressure. The one thing that I found fascinating, so I went back and looked at um, this, the Australian Parliament came out with this thing in like 2019, um, where they were talking about like how Australia's housing crisis, which dude, we've seen this for ages. And they, there was an undersupply of 180,000 houses at that point, or dwellings, I should say, at that point. And obviously, we never caught up. Like, it was just, that was just it. And so I go, okay, well, maybe that is where the equilibrium is. Maybe we just live as a country with an undersupply of 180,000. And that is a good tightrope and tension between prices and supply, like demand and supply. And then I go, cool. uh, it's, so too, it's too close. It's unhealthy. I still stand by that, but continue. I, Concur. And so then I go, okay, well, if we're 350, 450,000 houses or dwellings under supply now, I'm like, we just need to, we do need to catch up. And we are adding more petrol and fire by bringing more people in, noting that the more people that we're bringing in are sort of students and people who are going to rent and they're probably okay with apartments and stuff like that. So my belief or my thought around this is apartment buildings go up over the next couple of years. We start seeing that trend of those approvals hopefully will pivot in the next year or so. The building approvals and the completions will start pivoting for apartments and it will just slow down. the. the and when I say a tear, like the growth just going crazy. It'll just slow it down because we're seeing the trend. It wouldn't have solved it at that point. I think this thing's going to take five, 10 years to solve. I just think that the investors would have realized it now, got in, and then it would have normalized. And then they go, cool, it's just going to take five years, but we're on the right path on that. So I just think that's a one to two year tear. I think you believe in government way too much. <laughs> no, I, I believe in the private market solved, to an they extent. They haven't solved this in the last 10 years. Why are they suddenly solving it in the next five? Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not saying, saying competence go up. I'm not. No, no, I'm not saying that. 
Yeah. I'm not saying they're going to solve it. I'm more saying that people will be able to intellectualize with, oh, this seems as though it's solvable. I just don't think it would be, it probably will never be solved in Australia. All right, <laughs> so let's just go through there. Will. Just humor me on this a little bit then, Grant. So you're a developer. Right? Yep. What are you trying to do? Make profit. Dude, I'm holding back stock because I want to make as much profit as I can. Right. So why would you change that? No, but, and then, but that's what I'm saying is that people will start seeing stats of approvals go through. People will start seeing apartment buildings coming onto the market. Like they will start, people will intellectualize and say, this seems as though it's solvable. It's not solved. We just see it. Or the price has already been baked into the market. I just don't look at this changing anytime soon. I appreciate your uh, optimism, but there's, from my point of view, it's like I don't see it. I think this is an ongoing problem in Australia for quite a while from here. I think but that don't we're going to keep. Yeah, so I'm going to jump in here. Don't you think that as investors, we will get to a point where we go, great, we have seen the opportunity of the market being squeezed on an undersupply. And so we're willing to bet on that and invest in that and we will take the wins as it goes. But then it gets to a point where we're like, it's very difficult for us to justify any higher of a price for yields or potential growth or otherwise. And then it just normalizes based on this squeeze that we're in right now. Yeah, so can, um, you're kind of asking a few questions in one here or kind of- I'm definitely stacking it up, yeah. Yeah, and like we can't blanket state this one either. Is like, I don't expect the premium markets to do well why interest rates are high. So if interest rates keep going up, I can't see places that uh, have high levels of debt going up because those properties become harder to buy. Right? That's why. So we've got to really like look at the layers of this. Just like I mentioned before with supply and demand, is like if the supply is in the wrong place, it's not really supply. Right? If you wanted to go out for dinner and get a steak and there's no steak or very limited steak, so you go to a restaurant right, and they're like, look, we've only got five steaks tonight. You can pay a little bit more and get a steak or you can have chicken or you can do. You were really wanting a steak. I'll pay a bit more for my steak. Yeah, but some people will not, right? They shift to chicken. But Definitely. that's the whole idea of like supply and demand in, in theory of like, well, people will pay a premium when there is a limited amount. And you see this in a, in a whole bunch of things that come in it. So what I think is really challenging and what you're saying right now is that it's so generalized. So, so generalized across all these things. And it's like hey. there's so many layers to it. So um, to your point, let's say, you know, there's interest rates going up is really negative for um, – property markets yes right so the higher interest rates go you know that's not a great thing for property investors that's like something that's a what you call it headwind mm -hmm. but then a tailwind is you know immigration population growth we've also got that's like why. government stimulus and infrastructure and jobs and things like that we've also got mining right we're a big exporter we're doing all these things with uh green uh metals which would tell us that you know there's some tailwinds there for our economy in general so when I look at all of these forces and things that are going on and just incentives, like as I said, it's like developers want to make money. I don't know a developer out there thinking they're uh, so solving the uh, housing crisis. I understand what they're really doing. They might, you know, soft sell on the second. Lips. Yeah, no, I'm helping Australians housing supply. And I'll give them credit, they are. But they're also very interested in making a profit. I don't see them doing it unprofitably. Totally. Funnily enough, I think we're saying similar things. It's more, I just think that uh, if I was to articulate it in a better way, and you are correct, I'm, I'm significantly overgeneralizing just to make sure that we don't talk about this for four hours like you and I usually do. <laughs> Which is, I'm like, I think that there's, I think the next year or two is going to be crazy. Like, I think we're just going to see some weird things in some different markets. And I, I concur with you on uh, 
there are markets in markets and not to go like specifics on it, but de- definitely agree. I just believe as though what we see over the next year, maybe two years, will be very different to what we see after it. I just don't think it's going to go vertically up on property prices across in different markets for a decade until they potentially solve. I guess we'll find out. Time will tell. Totally. And there's like all these other things, right? I don't want to blank and say this one. But do, you, do you want to know what I actually think the biggest risk is to the property market? Okay. Legislation. <laughs> the government. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I totally do. It's like change. Like if you look back on property in general, it's like why is there an undersupply? Is because basically property investors have been not very favorably treated when it's come to legislation and whether it's come to like depreciation changes is a huge one. APRA changing things on lending, although I understand there was good intent behind that, making sure you know borrowing stays healthy in Australia and we didn't have a global financial crisis but you would have to look to a lot of the legislation things in recent times what Queensland did with uh, or attempted to do with land tax tax. yeah things like that I think are the bigger risk or like the Greens were at once promoting like uh, rent caps like locking rents like those types of things I think are probably the bigger risk and then the only other thing I'd look at is to go, if someone gets in and they pass, like let's say supply and demand gets so out of whack, so out of whack, which it's not far off in my opinion, but it's like that some crazy legislation comes in where they start subsidizing developers and developers are getting paid to build unprofitably. That'll lead a boom, right? You know, that's So if they happen. go to all the developers and just say, no tax, build. This, that is what's going to happen. Approvals quicker. No, ta- like that is that is like yes. I don't know, it's, man. I still with the conflict of councils that might happen, but this like nimbyism yeah, in uh, Australia is so huge. But you know what's you know what's funny because they're going to do that in the places that they don't want, like in the places that there are spare land <laughs> that people don't want to live in. Like they'll just keep pushing people out to the like further beyond the burbs. Like that's that's you know the government. I mean, you've seen this way too many times. It's just like I have. Like it's just a, it's a tick in a box. It's a now we're doing we're doing the thing, Charlie. We're putting money into it, and it's like it doesn't actually help solve the real problem. And ideal suburbs are just like still going up. I yes. I do have one other solution for this. <sighs> tent tent city, kind of, but not really. It's like you got to remember that like Australia didn't have cities beforehand. Like something made them desirable. Like we did build these cities that people want to live in. I think it's time for Australia to start a new city. Can we start taking names? If anyone's got a good name for that city, reply to the email. It, I, I want to see some good names for this new city. <laughs> but Amazing. I, I concur. Like it's like the Silicon Valley, right? Like how do you build something in the middle of somewhere and make people want to go there because there are incentives, whether it's tax breaks, whether it's – great salaries whether it's a tech hub or something like that like how do you just go and build something that a whole group of people will ideally move towards silicon valley is a great example right really great example of what could be done if a new hub or a technology hub was to evolve in australia maybe that'll come through but i think we should move on we've barely covered any points and we're 30 minutes into this episode yes (laughs) what's the next one we got on this list all right next one here what a shocker. Talk about like forecasted moves. RBA raises the rate 0.25. I think everyone knew that was coming. I think that, I think everyone just resembled what I did. I, <laughs> I walked out to the kitchen at like 2.45 p.m. And wife, Hazel's like, 
what happened with the RBA today? I'm like, I increased by 0.25. She's like, all right. And I'm like, she's like, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, what what are you doing tonight? Like, it was just like, it was like nothing. It was just like, it was just normal. Just becoming immune to it, right? It's like your first cup of coffee was like the first rate rise. It really affected you. And then now it's like, oh, just just another cup of coffee. Not a big deal. (laughs) You need like five to kick in that buzz. (laughs) But yeah, like it's just, everyone saw it coming. It's just steady state. I just don't think they're trying to break anything now. It's just, uh, we'll just see where this lands. A couple of things I find quite interesting here is that uh, quite a few big economists are now uh, really signaling that they've gone too far. They have gone too far. And um, I, I don't know if that's true or not, if they have actually gone too far, but I have noticed a media shift really significantly pointing towards the idea that there's too much. it's doing too much damage. So I find that quite fascinating that maybe this is the point where rates change. It's still forecasted for another like, two to three more rate rises is the consensus at the moment, which I thought was particularly interesting as well. But I'll share another couple of insights that I find uh, quite fascinating on the side of this. Number one is Canada just paused. So we've seen a big country um, and like they're a significant economy first, do you call it first tier? What do they call it? Like first world first country world. or whatever? First world. Yeah, so they've paused, which I think is an interesting sign of like another nation like not wanting to put uh, that through their economy. And then the second one that I thought was interesting here is that the United States has had some rather poor uh, data come through on inflation and what's happening in their economy. And they're actually considering, a, I think it's a 0.5 to 0.75 rate rise at the next Uh, whenever that occurs, their next meeting. And like markets and the share markets have all tanked on the back of that news in a really big way. So again, Australia's risen. Canada hasn't. US looking for a big rise. Would this be the time that maybe something breaks and it's the end of it? Could this go longer? I find it really fascinating. I think, yeah. It's just so different. Every time I look at the American markets and then compare it to the Australian market, it just... This last, call it six to 12 months, has really shown me just how different they are. And it's just it's, looking at what happens in the US has some kind of impact to Australia, sure. But it's yeah, just, they're still the big dog. To, what happens there does affect other countries. But I'm like, it's just the way that they operate and the way that their spending has continued to go crazy. And it just doesn't correlate with what happens to us in Australia. And obviously, we've got undersupply of housing. Like you had a great point around the green minerals. And I've just, it's just like it's just different, and so I'm always cautious. But I do, I do wonder what's going to break first out of the states. <laughs> I'm like, wonder what's going to break. All right, well, I'm going to jump into the next point here, and I want to almost tag on something from that point into this one. So one of the key differences in Australia versus the US is in the US you get a 30 year fixed mortgage. So if you uh, get a mortgage when you buy a house and it's five percent, it's five percent for the entire time. They do not have uh, variable loans in the same way that Australia does. Well, they do offer them. It's just no one's dumb enough to take them. Apparently, <laughs> very small of heart of the market. How many how many investment books did you read that were written by someone in the, the United States around like a fixed fee mortgage, and then you went looking at Australia like, oh, they don't exist. <laughs> Dude, I went even further than that. I tried to see if there was ways for me to borrow money in the US to buy Australian the states, yeah, yeah, to get it the loan like- product because I thought it was fantastic. I imagine like you you know your payment and that you take out the interest rate risk that we deal with in Australia continually. Um, totally. Just, I think it's so interesting in nature. But one of the side effects of that is like when a rate rise happens, we're affected instantly as mortgage holders. 
or next day when the banks raise, you know, like they pass on that really quickly. Where in the US, it's like all these rate rises have been happening. And it's like, if you have a locked mortgage and like your home, no biggie, nothing's changed for you. So spending behavior doesn't change in the same way. It's only when people need to sell or refinance debt or go into certain situations that it's impacted. Which brings me to my next point is that in Australia, something that I found really fascinating in recent times is just how much harder rate rises hit millennials than they do boomers. Because it's much more likely that if you're a millennial and do own a home, is that you have a much more or much larger mortgage than your potentially parents do, who would be the boomer generation, um, who have ha- maybe had the same house for 20 years and it's nearly paid off. Not to mention they might have significantly higher earnings at this stage of their life and their spending isn't the same as well. So, Grant, did the millennials just get screwed again? Is that what's happening here? <laughs> they definitely did because what is a one-third renters, one-third mortgage, one-third paid off? Majority of the ones with paid off are like boomers who also own an investment property. <laughs> and so now they're raking in more money from the millennials who are paying through the teeth for rentals. So thanks for that, boomers. And then the people who do have mortgages, to your point, have purchased properties or PPRs um, or even to an extent investment properties that are a higher rate than the boomers. Plus, they're trying to put kids through schools where the boomers, like all the kids have left the nest and they've just got empty rooms kicking around for sewing and guest rooms and stuff now. So like, I just think, yeah, this is a very challenging predicament because I'm like, how does that, how does it get solved besides that generation just continuing to move on? Time will sort this one out to your point. That's the great equalizer in this scenario. And it's, it's just unfortunate because it's like, okay, well, the, the next 30 years, is that, that's what it is, Charlie. Like it just, it just is what it is now. But to, to your point, like the millennials are going to feel the brunt of this. This will impact their discretionary spending. This will impact their – what they're looking for is like a livable quarters. Like they're probably looking for apartments to what we were just talking about before as opposed to like big houses and stuff. Um, I'm actually curious if this is, this is like the last generation who sort of want their house where they just start normalizing the idea of just, cool, we can raise a, a family in an apartment now, Charlie. Like this is just the norm. All right, so let's just walk through that because I think that's fascinating. So let's say, you know, 20 years ago, the Australian gene was to buy a house and that was possible for even a household with one income. Well, yeah. kind of, but we'll go with it. And over time, housing has become so disproportionately expensive is then it moved to you needed two full-time incomes to do it, which is why what's common or had been common in what I'll call like Gen X into the older millennials is both people work, you can still get a good home, things go in that direction. And over time, housing has just outpaced that earning to a large degree where people, instead of going for a house, are starting to downgrade to, when I say downgrade, electing to live in locations that are more expensive but get townhouses or apartments. Yeah, smaller backyard, it might be like a shared wall with someone else, those kind of things. And then to go further than that, the burden is getting so high. It's like, why would anyone sign up for such a massive mortgage? Because, well, they can't live the rest of their life. Their life just becomes becoming a slave to that mortgage. And maybe they can't even get access to the finance for that mortgage. Totally. It's a really fascinating thing. Have you thought about the other side of this, though? As boomers age out, right, and they – do pass on, and I'm not wishing any boomers to age out or pass on prematurely or early, but they are going to bring supply back onto the market at some point as well. 
So there's got to be a counter to this to some degree. But to your point, that doesn't mean prices go down at all. So and that's the, in that's your opinion, what do you think? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's coming closer to the last run. I, it's funny. You were talking just before about how like the Brightons of the world, the councils aren't going to approve like small apartment buildings anytime soon. And so I actually think that what's going to happen is as as the current boomers sort of progress on, uh, unfortunately, I think that then the millennials will start running councils and start being like the ones elected in and they will be they were they are the ones with scars on their back they are the ones like we wanted to live here like all my parents or maybe uh, there may be the parents had three kids and the three kids couldn't buy in that spot so they only could sell their parents house and they're like well how do we get in that's when you can start seeing some changes to what is in these suburbs because I they're think like we're now we're seeing that to a degree though right is this not why places like queensland and wa are booming because of that affordability yep. And so it's not going to be a light switch. It's going to be like this little fade, if you will. Um, and so, but again, it's just the, it's just that time thing. But even to that point, everyone's like relocated or you've got a whole heap of apartments built into your CBDs by that stage, et cetera. So I look at this as, uh, as the population in Australia just continues to grow. Like it is what it is. Um, funnily enough, I was actually looking at going like, okay, do I just go and decrease my desire for a standalone property <laughs> and start buying a unit or a townhouse now. Like even saw myself starting to think about that. I was on realestate.com looking at them going, oh, maybe I could live in something like this as opposed to a standalone. I feel the same way. Oh, really? Yeah. I, yeah, I'm like, at what point does it make sense to spend $5 million on a home when I go, oh, what if I spent, you know, $2 million on like a baller townhouse in the same location and invested that three mil in that example? Yeah. It's like, a what a difference that would make. And so I started looking at it as well on the other side of going, man, like, so we extended the apartment here because um, I was like, I just don't want to go to the rental market and start fighting everyone else again. I'd either just overpay everyone just so I didn't have to deal with it or I'm just like, I'll just extend this and try and figure out what I'm going to do next. Like I just, it's at that stage now for me where, and I'm very fortunate that I'm able to do it versus what other people just don't have that opportunity. Don't you find it's interesting in your psychology that it's like you're willing to compromise on the place you want to live in that example? Like you don't particularly want to be there. You're already saying, well, I'll spend more money on more rent here. I know rents are going to go up. Money's got to come from somewhere, Grant. That's money that's taken out of, what is it, uh, discretionary spending. Discretionary spending. It to it's totally. But I'm already like mentally preparing myself now <laughs> for something that's in like a year's time. And I'm just like, if I, that's how I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm across this stuff quite well. I couldn't imagine how other people are sort of feeling about it and thinking about it. But, yes, last run, Charlie. What do you reckon? Hitch. Wrap it up? Wrap it up. Wrap it up. Awesome. If you're listening to this and you're like, that was valuable, I'm curious. Reply back to the newsletter that Charlie has sent out and actually let us know what you have seen happen in your version of the March update. And if you're not on the newsletter, be sure to join it. Head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter, put in your name and email and subscribe and then just hit reply. Let us know what you were seeing on the ground. Just want to say thank you very much for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of Property and Investing.